listening to SKUcast, the podcast for entrepreneurs in the promotional products industry. SKUcast shines a light on our industry's best work, features maverick personalities, and discusses what's really involved in running a modern promotional products business. SKUcast is the official podcast of Common SKU. Even the big companies in our industry, the big distributors, are still very, very small companies. And the supply chain is full of a lot of very small companies. So I find it interesting when you've got a, a $2 million supplier selling to a million and a half dollar distributor that's selling to a billion dollar company. So I think if we all realize that that goes on in this industry, it will allow us to say, why not, why not me? Why can't I go to this you know, big enterprise level customer and take a swing at the fence? With over 25 million in sales, Scott Alterman and his business partner, Jordy, have a history of taking big risks and charting unconventional paths. The Icebox has earned a reputation for being one of the most innovative and edgy swag fanatics on the planet. Ever the rebels, Scott and Jordy have managed to grow a successful business while retaining an edge to their brand and their business model. At SKUCon in Las Vegas, Scott took the crowd on a wild ride through his crazy journey as a serial entrepreneur, sharing lessons learned on how to build a swag empire while evolving your team and transforming even your own role in the business. Scott talked about the biggest business lessons he's learned and provided insight into how one of the most vibrant brands in the industry today stays fresh and keeps it cool. SKUCon attendees, in their feedback, raved about Scott's realness, his willingness to share freely from the life lessons he learned, and the absolute kick he gets out of still taking risks, thinking big, and staying scrappy. Big thanks to Scott for sharing from his heart and for closing out a rousing round of speakers with the perfect ending to an inspirational day at SKUCon. By the way, there's a video montage halfway through the presentation. You can view the video and Scott's slide deck at community.commonskew.com. And now from SKUCon, Scott Alterman. I'm not usually uh, the plugged into the industry type. We've just been really busy, you know, and, and as I've gotten older, I'll date myself a few times in the presentation, but I'm really valuing the collaboration and the sharing and the energy that I'm seeing and so impressed with what Common Skew is doing. So let's give a round of applause to these guys. I'm also not normally a public speaker. I've never spoken at any industry function whatsoever. So um, the, the few speaking engagements I've done were to my kids' kindergarten class and the high school FBLA program that my homeroom teacher asked me to come speak at. So I could kind of BS those guys, and, and I'm nervous uh, knowing you guys all know your shit. So <laughs> I'll do my best. Um, so we'll start with, let's talk about me. Let's start about me. Uh, I am a, uh, the, I'm currently the chief swag officer at the Icebox. It's just a weird title because we're kind of a weird company. Uh, my background is with apparel. Um, I'll talk a little bit about, about that uh, throughout the presentation. Um, I was born and raised in Atlanta, one of the few. Um, married with three boys, uh, pride and joy of my life for my kids and family. Um, as I've gotten older, I'm trying to get more philanthropic, both, both through the business and um, personally. Um, so I'm enjoying that new chapter for me. Um, and one fun fact about myself is that I was the um, world's greatest backyard athlete, which is a true competition that um, life is good. It was a friend of mine, the, the founders, and, and also a customer of ours in our early days. Um, there's some guys out of Boston, you probably know their brand, and I was able, what that really means is 
Let me back up. I'm the reigning world's greatest backyard athlete because this was 10 years ago and it was the last time they ever did the competition, so I'm claiming the title. Uh, what that means, let me, let me elaborate. So before you clap, it, it means that I can spit watermelon seeds with distance and accuracy. It means I can toss a Frisbee pretty well and I can hit wiffle balls over the green monster at Fenway Park. So. Uh, it was an amazing event. They raised a half a million dollars to charity. Uh, it cost $5,000 to participate. And there were 100 people in it. And I was, I was the world's greatest backyard athlete. So thank you. Thank you. Um, so enough about me. Let's talk a little bit more about my childhood. Um, kidding. You're supposed to laugh. It's enough about me. Let's talk more about me. Um, I had come from a long line, uh, a family of entrepreneurs. Is it entrepreneurs or newers? Whatever it is, entrepreneurs. Uh, tough word to say. Um, but it's, it's deep in my family's blood. My, my grandfather and his five brothers opened the first supermarket in Atlanta that ultimately had over 100 supermarkets and a million square foot warehouse. And this was back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, when, they, when they actually sold the business, it was operating far before then. My dad was always uh, his own boss, uh, ran many restaurants. And my mother's father was ironically in the uniform space for police and firemen's uniforms in Kansas City. So I kind of come from just a line, a long line of entrepreneurial people. And at a very young age, I kind of got the bug. Um, you know, I did all the usual suspect things. I, I had lemonade stands. I had, uh, I had my own lawn mowing business. I was waxing and washing cars. And um, I'll tell you about a few of my most interesting entrepreneurial ventures. Uh, there's, there's three that come to mind. I'll try to keep them brief, but it'll hopefully let you guys understand my entrepreneurial spirit a little bit better. So the first business I'll tell you about was a business that my brother and I uh, started. He was about 16, which would make me about 13. And um, this business lasted one day. It's an awesome business, though, I got to tell you. Uh, we were um, thinking we were headed to Six Flags Amusement Park in Atlanta, Georgia, which is just a typical amusement park. And we, you know, he's barely just starting to drive. And I'm his co-pilot, and we're off to Six Flags. And we stop at the grocery store, and we see a Coke can sitting right there. And it says $5 off admissions at Six Flags. And we're headed to Six Flags. So we're like, let's buy a couple Cokes and save some money. And then kind of the light bulb went off that let's buy as many Cokes as we can possibly find in this grocery store. And every grocery store between here and Six Flags, and we stopped at about three or four. And we bought cases and cases and cases of Coke with the idea that we were gonna park ourselves outside of the admission entrance, and we were gonna sell a $3 can of Coke, and our pitch was that you get a free Coke and you save $2 up, up ahead. And Cokes were flying off the shelves, I gotta tell you, we were, we were killing it. Uh, it was a very easy sale, and we just learned at a very young age that sometimes a, a quick creative idea can, can be something, until, of course, the security of the park and the police decided to um, ask us politely to vacate the property. And that was the end of our business. But we had a lot of Cokes at the house that we had to explain to our parents. So that was a one-day business. But I think it's just the excitement and the, the rejection and the risk and the excitement when you, when you make a sale. That hit us at a young age. And so our next business, we graduated to 
uh, the fake ID business. <laughs> this was a great, this was a hell of a business. So he was now about 17 and thought he could, you know, get into the local bars. And uh, we decided to make a perfect replica of the Georgia State driver's license. This was back before there were holograms, and they've made it a lot more difficult, I like to say, because of our great work. But we, um, my brother, literally, we bought a poster board, we bought an X-Acto knife and all these little stickers and markers and, and made a poster board, shot the picture, laminated it, and we literally, you could not tell the difference in our, our version and the real deal. So word kind of spread uh, to the high school, to his friends, and, and really to the whole community that we were, the, we were now open for business. <laughs> and... Uh, we had literally 50 to 100 people at our house one day uh, selling uh, IDs for 50 to 100 bucks a pop. And the name on the driver's license, I'll never forget, was, I don't know where we came up with this, but it was Stanley Lewis Lowenberg. That was the guy's name. And we had a female companion to her for, for women. Uh, and we were, we were killing it with, with fake IDs. And uh, my mother was actually on bed rest. She had some sort of a operation, or I don't remember exactly, but she was kind of, you know, on bed rest, and my grandmother was staying with us, and my mom told us the story later that my grandmother came into her room while she was resting and said, Susan, the boys are being perfect angels. They're outside taking pictures of each other, <laughs> and my mom, my mom knew way better and said, oh, whoa, 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 so... So we were going to get busted anyways by my mom, but the real uh, end to that business was we were watching the 6 o'clock news one day, about three weeks after business was booming, and we had happy customers all over town. And they say, you know, feature story, Atlanta cracks down on fake IDs, and it threw a bunch of IDs on this, like, still shot on the TV, and right there in the middle was a Stanley Lewis Lowenberg. <laughs> <laughs> And it wasn't my brother's picture, but it was one of somebody he obviously knew, and so that business had to, had to close shop, too. And the last business I'll tell you guys about uh, was one that I'm probably not, I'm not probably, I'm definitely not proud of, um, but it, it'll explain me a little bit. So I think it stemmed from the fake ID business. It was the next logical step. We became baseball card professional manipulators. So we, we collected cards as kids, and, and if any of you guys have ever traded baseball cards, the, the value of the card is um, completely attached to uh, the condition of the card. So you have mint condition, you have good condition, you have poor condition, and that's, that's the basis of how they value the card. So we figured out how to take a, a horribly conditioned card and turn it into mint condition, and we we started with an X-Acto knife, one of those huge deals where you put the paper in and you cut the knife and it slivers the edge. Well, we were cutting cards to be centered or sharp corners. We were melting liquid paper with crayons and coloring up the coloration. And, and uh, long story short, we started buying poor condition cards from the local baseball card shop. We'd bring them home, turn them into mint condition, and we would sell them back to the guy we bought them from. <laughs> So we were really messed up, uh, but, but it, it just shows you that we were creative and, and risk takers, and those were three very fun businesses that I just wanted to share because it'll, it might explain my family and my upbringing at some level. So I spelled serial entrepreneur with an S on purpose because I was a little on the edge there.
and cereal with a C is actually what I eat for dinner three nights a week. So it was time for us to get too legit. I say, too legit to quit. And if I didn't have a bum knee, I'd give y'all the dance right now. So we graduated from these kind of fakakta businesses that we, we did as kids. And the first two businesses we started were in this industry. And again, it'll, it'll kind of help shed the path of, of, of my career in, in the industry. And my hope in talking about kind of my story is that maybe there's one or two nuggets of something we've done or, or are working on with the icebox as I get to that portion of the presentation. And, and, you know, I've learned so much here today, and a lot of people have covered some of the things that I'm going to reinforce. And, you know, this business is, it's not really rocket science. It's, um, it's a service industry, and there's not that many ways to differentiate yourself. So some of what I'll share, uh, we'll, we'll touch on that. But before I go down where I am today, I'd like to kind of tell you about these first two businesses. So our first business that we started was called Gagware, G-A-G-W-E-A-R. And I believe it stood for like Greg Alterman Gear. My brother's name was Greg. And it was really his business, and I kind of was his first employee. And I'm going to skip a lot of this because I don't want to bore you with these, these two brands. But um, Gagware was an apparel-only promotional products distributor. So we didn't sell any of, the, any of the, the, the promotional side. We just sold apparel. And what happened was this was, you know, in 1992-ish, so 25, 27 years ago, 28 years ago. Um, there was not a lot of cool product in the industry. It was very, you know, a lot has, has come into play over these last years. And we were frustrated that there was no, you know, we were straight out of college, young kids, and there was nothing cool for our customers. So I went shopping, and I've always been a big baseball cap guy. I just love hats. I, I still am a big baseball hat guy. So back then, we were looking for cool product that we could make to sell to our customers. And, and we ran into this baseball cap that I bought at a retail store called Ski Country Imports. And, you know, this thing was low profile. It was soft. It had a great closure. It fit well. And I showed it to my brother. And I'm like, why don't we just figure out how to make this hat? And so... It's interesting how things evolve and how different decisions you make kind of affect your entire business, but we're going to circle back to that, to that moment in a few minutes. We end up making the hat. We, we figured out who to talk to to kind of take us to China and learn how to source the exact same piece. So we, we jumped on a plane. We go to China. We sit down with a factory. We knew we were in the right factory when they were making for Nike and Ralph Lauren and all the big brands at the time, and we found our factory. We're excited until they tell us, you know, the minimum order is, is a full container load. And so we have this brand new company, we're young out of college, and we said, all right, let's do a container load, whatever that means, we'll take it. And so that was probably dumb, but the smart thing we did, and it was very lucky, and, and this is what I was referring to as, as it kind of affecting our overall path in business, was we put our phone number and, and company name inside the label of the hat. So Gagware, 1-800-850-TEES was our phone number, 850-TEES. Yeah, we're putting that in a hat, not the smartest thing ever, but we put our branding in the hat. So um, what happened was we got back to, you know, the, the hats came in, we threw them in our backpacks, and we started hustling all over Atlanta, selling them to bars and restaurants and anybody who would buy them, really. And the phone started ringing. I'll never forget, Halo calls us up. And Halo at the time still is a you know, huge brand. They were probably the same size back then. 
And they call us and say, we saw your hats. We'd like to buy some. And we were kind of looking at each other like, you know, we brought them in blank. We haven't sold them. So how many would you like, Halo? <laughs> and uh, so, you know, additional competitors started calling. And that's when we kind of said, you know, we, you know, we found a niche here. And by putting our phone number in the hats and having our competitors call us, it really led us to believe that we could fill a void on the supplier side of the business. And that's kind of the launch of the, our second born company, which was Alternative Apparel. Um, it started off as Alternative Headwear from that hat. It became Alternative Apparel, and now it's grown to just Alternative. So that whole business would not be around had we not, as a apparel-only distributor, found a hat, put our name in it, had our competitors call us, and it led us to starting that brand, which my brother ultimately took off and ran with. I've been very uninvolved with that brand for the last uh, 18 years, which brings me back to our final born business, which is the Icebox. Um, so the Icebox was started in 2001. Um, it was really kind of the brainchild of, of my current business partner and I. He was, uh, his name's Jordy Gamson. And while I was running Gagware and my brother was off starting Alternative Apparel, Jordy and I were frequent lunch together. He was in a scrap metal business right down the hall from our showroom of Gagware. And we would, you know, cry on each other's shoulders every day at lunch and talk about how tough our businesses were and just got to know each other. And we quickly learned that we shared, you know, similar uh, business philosophies and just had, you know, we looked at things in, in a similar way. So he sells his scrap metal business and we pick up our meetings a, a little more serious about how can you jump in and help me over here? I'm drowning with this gagware company. So we ultimately renamed the business and we took a step back and the next slide, we, we tell this story to our customers and on a, on a regular basis. We had many and many breakfasts really plotting out what we wanted this company to be. And I was very fortunate with our gagware company and, and watching Alternative evolve over the years to say, wow, we've learned a whole lot through this process. And how can we take a step back and, and kind of clean sheet of paper? How would we like to start a new promotional products distributor ship? And uh, you know, we started by saying we don't want to just be apparel, so um, we changed the name. We didn't love the name Gagware. We went with the Icebox. And um, a lot of what we do today was talked about over these breakfasts about the type of company we wanted to build. And so I'll spend the next you know, 20 minutes or however long I've got left. I know it's close to drink time, so I'll keep it moving. Uh, we spent the next uh, you know, 18 years really following this napkin business plan. And that's a little bit of a stretch because we've evolved on our own. But um, some of the things I'd like to share with you are just the, the lessons we've learned. We've made a million mistakes. Um, we've done some things right. And you know, for us, on this napkin, it was very important for us to build a brand ourselves. Um, we found it ironic, and I still scratch my head, how many people in this industry don't have a brand themselves. We're sitting here telling companies how to spend big dollars, in many cases, on their brand. And none of us have a brand ourselves, for the most part. So we wanted to kind of change that a little bit and really spend some time on, on building our own brand so we could practice what we preach. We could buy the product self-promotionally um, and, and do all the little things that, that big brands do so that we could you know, practice what we preach. And you know, for us, it was a lot more than just self-promotion. It was. You know, we, we have a mascot that we decided to bring on. We, we put our branding on our boxes. We, um, we 
we, we wanted our customers to perceive us through this cool lens. And anybody can say they're cool or say they're an agency, and I think we were victim of that in, in saying how cool we were, but it doesn't matter what any of us say about our brand. It matters how we're perceived. And so we really worked on all these little touch points so that hopefully we're perceived through that cool lens. And I really feel like that's been a, a, a big benefit to spend time on our own brand. So that would be the first thing I would share about the Icebox that I feel has been uh, you know, part of our, our journey. The next thing we'll talk about, that's me. That's me in the studio when I was a big time singer. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I am a passionate person by, by nature, and when I was in sales in the industry in the early days, um, I would come home and I'd be excited if I made a big sale, but I'd also kind of be like, you know, am I going to be a pencil peddler for the rest of my life? And, and I, I needed to find customers that I got excited about. So, you know, I grew up as a, a basketball player. I know that may be hard for some of you to believe. I'm 5'7 and Jewish and white. Uh, nothing prejudiced there, it's just who I am. And, uh, and you know, I, I was passionate about basketball as a kid. I was a big Atlanta Hawks fan and, and basketball fan in general. So for me, a, a light went off when I started calling on the Atlanta Hawks and selling them and realizing how excited I got that I was, you know, doing the swag for this childhood passionate piece of me. And I could talk about the old teams with the buyer and I could talk basketball about the current team and and it just really, you know, struck a nerve with me that, you know, why don't we all do more of what we enjoy doing, and why don't we dig into the fire in the belly? And, and so I've spent the last, you know, years as I've gotten out of sales trying to find, you know, passion projects for myself within the business. Um, as we've grown, um, I'm, doing, I'm not doing sales anymore. It's really the only thing I was ever great at. Alex on here on the front row had to basically put this whole presentation together for me. So I'm, I'm not very good at a lot of things, uh, but I was a good salesperson and I'm passionate. And so I'm also kind of a weirdo in a lot of ways. <laughs> this, is, this is very uh, therapeutic. Um, so I'm weird, I'm weird in the ways that um, I'll, I'll, I love to sing. I'm, I'll be in the car and I'm jamming on the radio and I'm in my shower singing, my wife's ready to kill me. And I started just like substituting our industry terms into whatever song was on the radio. So I'm, whatever it is, it's, I'm substituting swag and t-shirt and koozie or whatever the heck it is. And so the next thing I wanna show you was kind of a, a recent passion project that allowed me to have some fun. You know, we're not solving world hunger in our industry. Um, so I hope you enjoy the next video and you'll realize I may want to stick to my day job. Right now, 
I'm Scotty A and I came to get down. We're not internationally known, but we're known to make some uniforms because we're creative. I mean outrageous. Marketing minds, the kind of contagious. Cause I'm a winner, no, not a loser. To call a sales rep and he will not be lazy. Lovely brands adore me. I mean, even the ones who never saw me like the way that I source on the go. The reason why, man, I don't know. So let's go, cuz. your message daily and nightly will they ever fail yo i don't think so give them a shot for your next trade show to the extreme they'll rock some art you can handle light up your image you desire like a candle love them don't leave them for your next giveaway they'll hit the bullseye it's the icebox way if you got a problem yo they'll solve it check out their website on the phone just call it now that your brand is jumping biz rolling in and employees pumping quick to the point to the point no faking cooking up swag like a pound of bacon icebox baby we got products that'll Thank you. <laughs> um, I had a lot of fun doing that. I know I have zero talent, but it's just exciting to do that. So I should probably add that um, we're very lucky to be in a very cool part of town. And so with that whole you know, positioning of your brand that I spoke to earlier, by being located on the Beltline, which is kind of this hot new area in Atlanta, and having a, a building that's exposed brick and high ceilings, those are the things that make us feel like an agency without having to say it. And I don't even mean the agency that's billing things that aren't promotional products. I just mean that kind of more hip vibe. So we're very lucky that we chose an area of town with our facility. All these little decisions ended up really um, helping us with the perception we're trying to put out there. So um, the next thing I want to talk about is that my son looks exactly like Will Ferrell, my six-year-old. <laughs> I'll show you guys a picture tonight if you grab me. Uh, finding the right people is, is an obvious no-brainer. And um, you know, I mentioned that I can't do much. I can't, I can't do a spreadsheet. I can barely read a financial statement. And my business partner, who I mentioned we had similar philosophies, we have similar skill sets as well. So we had to quickly complement ourselves with operations people and process people and technology and decoration and all the things that, that we're terrible at and, and we're very unfocused. So to try to add structure to a culture that starts with the two of us at the top has been a, a work in process. But the people that we've been able to bring on, we, we've had our roller coaster and we've brought in plenty of the wrong people and we've definitely gotten better in this area um, from enough failure. But we're kind of at a point now, and I don't know if we're just lucky or, or smarter or more mature or just coincidence, but the last few years, we have just hired some really, really amazing talent. And I was trying to put, you know, put my finger on why, and, and we do little things. We're, we're, we're starting to do more personality testing with our superstars and seeing if we can kind of clone them. And I think what the biggest change for us was is when we, um, we read the book Good to Great. This was a long time ago. That's been out there. And something really hit home to Jordy and I where, you know, rather than post for the exact job we need, which we still do some of that, we now are looking for good people. And we are constantly meeting with people, whether we're looking to hire or not, and we try to have a pipeline of candidates that 
you know, we're very transparent to them. It doesn't matter what they're going to come in and do. If they like what we're up to and they want to come into a growing business, you know, we'll find their passion within our four walls. And, and, and we do it in a way that um, obviously it has to help us. And so roles are popping up and we're, we're moving people around because I think in this industry it's very hard to have a career path. You know, there's, there's owners and there's kind of everybody else. And so to develop some of these departments um, with business development and customer experience and merchandising and products teams and all these things that we've been fortunate enough to be able to, to you know, work into our people plan, it's, it's, it's really allowed us to, to attract great people. And so, you know, probably the most important thing in any business is people. And I would just tell you guys to take a good, hard look at your people and, and really have a strategy there. Um, that's... That's helped us as we've gotten better there, and we learn the hard way. So if there's a young person out there, if you hear nothing else today, get good people that do things that you can't do well. So another no-brainer comment, maybe we ought to all know our customers. I don't know if you all have seen this movie, um, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, but this was one of my favorite scenes where Steve Martin is pretty frustrated with this woman. And what I mean by know your customer is you know, that's a no-brainer, know your customer. Know them intimately, know their birthday, know what college they went to, know where they live and what they like to eat and drink, et cetera. Um, dig into their brand. I'm surprised how many people are going on meetings and they haven't done the proper due diligence to even understand how your customer goes to market. We're, we really try to preach that with our sales team and I think it pays dividends to walk in and, and it helps if they're passionate about who they're calling on so they can speak the talk. Um, but But, I would say this should really just be no people because the same deal applies with your employees, it applies with your vendors. Um, you know, this is a relationship business to the core. We're all selling the same stuff for the most part in different ways. So the, 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 the due diligence side and, and getting to know that customer or that vendor in an intimate way will protect that relationship and you know, we're all fighting hard to hold on to those relationships. So. Uh, that would be a, a, a piece of advice I would, I would offer. The next one, um, I have to remind myself of this one all the time. I was just in a great session uh, where someone, I believe, I can't remember which one it was, I think it was the seven sourcing uh, importing session, and they were talking about, you know, the only difference between a, a $500, a $5,000, and a $50,000 order is a few zeros. And I think, you know, it's, it's normal to be scared of these big orders at some level, but knowing that you know, there's only about 500 or so distributors that do over a couple million dollars in business, even the big companies in our industry, the big distributors are still very, very small companies. And, and the supply chain is full of a lot of very small companies. So I find it interesting when you've got a, a $2 million supplier selling to a million and a half dollar distributor that's selling to a billion dollar company. So I think if we all realize that that goes on in this industry, it will allow us to say, why not, why not me? Why can't I go to this you know, big enterprise level customer and take a swing at the fence? Um, because those bigger orders can, can really you know, change the momentum and the trajectory of what you can do. And, and you know, with the profits of, of these bigger orders, you can reinvest it in your business. And, and that's pretty much been the recipe we've had. We, you know, we've, I'll tell you another quick story, because I'm full of stories. We thought big one time and early on in the alternative apparel when my brother was kind of just getting it started and he was developing all the product and you know, making the catalogs and we were trying to differentiate that brand to be this new you know, cool hip blank um, apparel provider 
and we said, you know what, why don't we go sell to an to a Alpha Shirt company or Sanmar or one of the, one of the big suppliers? And we, we were too dumb and young to say we shouldn't, so we went, we jumped on a plane, and we went to, we called on Alpha Shirt Company. They were probably a four or five hundred million dollar company at the time. We were probably a two million dollar company at the time. And we, I'm, this is the weirdest sales call I've ever been on, so I'll elaborate on the story. So we're, we're with the owner of Alpha Shirt Company. It's a guy named Ron Berg, and uh, he's long gone. They've had multiple uh, private equity opportunities, and this guy was just a really, really strange guy. And we were, were out there showing him this sweatshirt that we want to sell him, and in the middle of the sales presentation, he gets up, and he, starts, and he just starts playing the piano that was conveniently located in the, in the presentation room. So we're... We're, try, you know, we're nervous, this is a, our you know, big opportunity, big sale, and our audience just starts playing the piano in the middle of the whole pitch. And so we didn't know if, what, if we should stop talking or you know, get up and dance or what. <laughs> but the bottom line is we sold this guy some sweatshirts, and we probably did it when we had no business doing it. We really didn't even know how we were going to produce the type of quantities that they ultimately needed. But we, we went for it, and we got the sale, and we figured it out. And that was a huge opportunity for Alternative to invest in more inventory and grow its business. So, you know, thinking big, I, I can think of one more example. I don't know how I'm doing on time. Somebody give me a time. Uh, how am I doing? It's, I got how much more time? Oh, 28 minutes. I got 12 minutes. And then we're going to have some questions, hopefully. Um, a recent you know, think big moment for me was more, you know, I mentioned I'm trying to get a little more philanthropic in my life, and I'm really enjoying that, especially now that I'm not in sales. I'm able to kind of go out and, you know, raise money for a cause and feel like I made a sale at some level. And so a friend of mine and I were uh, trying to raise money for a it's, a, it's a children's rehabilitation center, kids in wheelchairs and so forth that are, it's in Israel. And so we're going to these really high net worth, you know, this particular guy I'm going to tell you the story about is a billionaire. He's the nicest billionaire I know, uh, which makes him one of two billionaires that I actually know. He's a great guy, this guy. So we, we, we you know, we give him our pitch, and we had this $10,000 ask where we wanted him to, you know, put up $10,000, and we would go raise money with our generation and match his generosity. And we went in thinking that was a reasonable offer, and, and we told him all about the sports center and what they do, and you know gave a really nice presentation. And when we asked him for ten thousand dollars, he he pretty much laughed at us, and we were like, shit, you know, maybe we asked for too much. And he said, you guys are thinking way too small. And he sent us back, and he said, I want to hear this, this, and this, and I'm really intrigued with what y'all are doing. And so we came back to him, and long story short, the guy raised five. He he donated five hundred thousand dollars to us. And talk about elation and, and, you know, felt like another, you know, big, like the Alpha shirt sale kind of deal. But this was simply because he had to talk me into thinking big. And, you know, now we've got longevity on this program that we're working on for these kids for the next five years because the way we pitched it to him, which was really what he made us think about, was don't make it be about one year. You need to drag this out so it's got some real legs behind this one ask. And so we... We turned it into a five-year program where he's given us $100,000 a year, and we now got to go hustle and get it matched. So I spend a lot of mornings before work at these sorts of breakfasts, and it's, it's, it's re-excited uh, me about things. And, you know, I always come to this trade show, and I always get amped up for the business. I, you know, you can get burned out in this business very easily, 
And I always leave here, especially I feel like this one's going to be better than ever because I'm getting to talk about my story. I'm getting to listen to other people's stories. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm always leaving just amped up to get back to work. And so I'm going to tell you guys to just think big when you get back and go for it. Um, pretty simple advice. The next one, only a couple more slides left. The next uh, comment I'd like to share is, is, you know, it's easy for me to say constantly reinvent because I'm that typical entrepreneur that can't stay focused. I think what the key, a key is, in, in my opinion, is not standing still because everyone's going to pass right by you, but not getting distracted by all the opportunity that's out there because there's a zillion ways we can all go try and make money. So how do you stay focused and complement whatever business you know you guys are, are going after, and find a find a close cousin that's going to be a smart growth strategy without saying yes to everything. And believe me, the only reason I feel like that sound advice is because we've been running around like chickens with our heads cut off since you know the early 90s. Um, so I would say constantly evolve might be a better word, but but find that that balance between smart growth focus, and not standing still. And I think if you can play with that little conundrum, um, it'll, it'll work, maybe. <laughs> uh, I don't know if it's mantra or mantra, but my slide says have a, have a mantra, mantra, I don't know. Have a mantra, uh, or 10, have 10 mantras. And what I mean by that is, in our business, um, you know, we found all sorts of vernacular that, you know, when we're talking at our executive meetings, we all know how we refer program customers, project management. You know, everyone probably calls it different um, names in your, in your world. But we have little, little isms that um, I feel we lean back on all throughout the year, and they'd probably be pretty easy to identify in your own business. So I'm going to give you a couple of examples. So in our business, the one mantra that I've always remembered because my dad told it to me before we ever started any business and we, we think about it often is it's not the good deals you make in business. Uh, excuse me. It's not the good deals you miss that'll kill you. It's the bad deals you make. And so that's powerful if you really break that down. You know, you don't want to ever walk away from a big opportunity. And I'm telling you guys to think big and all these things, but that doesn't mean just say yes to, to some crazy opportunity. So... We have passed on lots of good big business. Um, probably one of the, the most proud moments I've ever been is when we walked away from a very large Circuit City program, and it was about a month before they filed chapter something, seven or 11, or, and, and we, we walked away because we couldn't come to terms on how they were gonna pay for the inventory, and in our minds, they were being a little unreasonable, and we didn't wanna take that particular risk, and that was a good bet. We take plenty of risk every day if it's calculated risk, and I think you have to do that at some level, unless you, you know, go with the model of safe and small, and there's nothing wrong with that model, too. Uh, there's been many days where I, I say, wow, if it was just me and my, my crazy brother again, even though he dragged me into all those crazy businesses that I'll blame on him, uh, you know, we, we might be able to make a lot more money short term if it was just the two of us in a, in a small office. But we made a decision a long time ago, and it's somewhat irreversible now that we were going to try to to build this brand out. And we're having a good time doing it. Um, and, you know, I hope we can stay on, on the trajectory we're on. So the last slide I'll say, and this is one of my favorite slides, really just because I love that picture of Pete Rose. Um, if there's anything you guys take from this, uh, this 
presentation. It would be just hustle. I, I feel like revenues can cure a lot of things in this industry. You know, we all want to be tighter operationally, and we all want to have great systems and web stores and this and that, but, but revenues cures a lot. So if you stay hungry and you chase sales, the rest of it, no one's way ahead of us at this point, um, in my opinion. Um, and I'm not saying don't focus on your operations. We're, we're doing a lot of that at the moment uh, in our business. Um, but, you know, one final story since, I, since I've got, uh, what do I have? It says 21 minutes. Is that how much I got left, Mark? 21 minutes? That can't be. Keep going, man. All right. I got last story and I'll be done. It's drink time. I know it's been a long day. Um, and it kind, of, it kind of applies to the hustle and scrappy strategy. Once again, my brother, he dragged me into this one too. We, uh, when we were starting Alternative Apparel, we were at our first trade show. And it was in Long Beach. It's the ISS show. It happens to be going on like this week, I think, this Thursday or Friday. And we were called Alternative Headwear. And we had six hats in our line. That was our whole catalog was six hats. And we decided we were going to just make these sample packs. We were going to put one of every single color of our one style in boxes, and we made hundreds of them. And we were going to get out there, and we were going to push sample packs. This was 20 years ago or more. And um, our thought was, you know, if, if, if distributors put these in their showrooms, they'll call us for orders. And then our entire strategy of the show was sell as many sample packs as we can. We had one big problem. When we got to the show, uh, it was, you know, we're looking around. This was our first ever trade show of any sort. We had no idea what the heck we were doing. And we're looking around, and we're seeing all these people, you know, bringing in their huge booths. We had a little 10 by 10 table. And we literally didn't, we forgot to think about what we were going to do for a booth. We had no sign. We had no uh, merchandising, nothing. So we huddled up, and we said, what are we going to do? And so we ultimately went to, like, I think it was Alpha, and who we, ironically, we sold a few years later some product to, and we said, guys, something terrible's happened. Our booth did not show up. <laughs> and, uh, and we borrowed grids, and we went to the grocery store and bought this yarn, and we, we used clothespins with our whole line behind us, and we ended up having a great-looking booth. Uh, but the point is, you know, we were scrappy, and we were hustling, and we were trying to move sample packs, so much so that we didn't even bring a booth with us. And so it's okay to not be perfect, and we've been far from it over the years. But, you know, hustle, hustle and, and revenues cures a lot. So um, I think that's it. That's all I got. Anybody got any questions? Somebody's got a question. Come on. Bueller. All right. Okay. We, we actually um, really think differently. And the question was, do we have any a creative department or graphic designers? We have seven. And uh, it's a very big expense. And we're, we have in-house screen printing. There's a lot of details I left out about the business. But because we're so screen print focused, um, by having art resources that can do a mock-up or a, you know quick artwork, um, that was a, a, a decision we made to differentiate. A lot of people lean on the supply chain or, or just contractors for art. It's very expensive, so I'm not even saying it's the right decision, but for our business, uh, we are heavily uh, creative and have an entire department focused on that. Whoops. 
Hang on, You'll, you're next. So during Bobby's intro, he referred to growth of the dollar exponential fund. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit Well, I can say that literally right this second, this many years into the industry and 18 years into the icebox, this is the first year where we've really taken a step back and, and looked at like a three to five year type plan and like what is our road to $50 million. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if that's answering your question, but we've done it out of more hustle and good people and that sort of thing. And, and we're finally, you know, I do a, what I do is a word of the year every year. And this year's word of the year that I sent out to the team and I try to put a little commentary with it is scale. And so I feel like it's time to really have a foundation where we can just keep stacking significant growth because we had some major growing pains last year, you know, uh, and, and, and in previous years. So when you're, when you're you know, selling $25 million or whatever it is and you, and you are still trying to grow 25, 30% at a clip, you feel that. And so, um, you know, we're having to, to look at operational tightness, systems, all those things I said weren't important and revenues were important. We're, we're chasing, our, you know, our getting the burgers out the door the way we, we call it. So, um, I don't know if I answered your question, but hopefully so. Thanks. Yeah. Really great presentation. Thank you. Uh, but I'm sorry if I missed it. Did you say where the brand came from? Like, what was the, why Icebox? Okay, the story of the name. I'll try to be quick. It's a long story. But I, I did mention Life is Good and that I was in that competition. Well, um, when we were starting Icebox, um, there were three or four of us in a room trying to name it. Like, our first couple of employees and Jordy and myself, and we were up on a whiteboard and we were writing out all these names that we, we wanted to, to change from Gagware to this new entity. And you know, 50, 50 names on there. And, and the Life is Good guys happened to be in town visiting us um, because Alternative was making a lot of their T-shirts and we, we shared offices at this point. We, we at, at some point, separated the businesses with people and, and physical space and all that sort of thing. But at the time, the Life is Good guys were coming through while we're up on this whiteboard and they said, what are you guys doing? And we said, we're, we're, we're doing a spinoff company. We're gonna sell promotional products and apparel now and yada, yada, yada. And they said, well, you want us to tell you the name we almost used instead of Life is Good? And I said, sure. And they said, Icebox. And I was like, I don't get it. And they said, we're going to sell cool stuff. So we're like, all right. And it kind of works. We wrote it up there, and we asked everybody in the room to go home and talk to their husband and wife or significant other and show them the list. And almost everyone came back with Icebox. And I also read an article that companies that end in an X have tremendous success at some level. So between those two pieces of information... <laughs> And it kind of worked with the, with the cool stuff uh, tagline. That's how we were named. Yeah. Anybody else? Ready for beers? One more? Cool. Um, why was the dude, did you ever figure out why the dude was playing the Never figured that out. I'm telling you guys, y'all, I, I don't know much about this guy, Ron Berg, but I had always heard he was just a, a strange guy. And... Something about uh, either him wanting to make us nervous or maybe he was showing us he liked us and he didn't care anymore and he's going to go play the piano, but uh, still don't know to this day why he did that. I do have an actual question. Um, so with your self-promo stuff, yeah. is a lot of it, what's it focused for? Like, do you do certain things that are focused for current clients, prospects, just family, friends, meeting your love concert? Like, yeah, so... Yeah, so we, we have a showroom. We have, a, we have two different showrooms in Atlanta, 
and we try to get customers to come in and see us because it really helps when they walk through and they feel like they're in a cool vibe and we've really set it up for them to kind of shop on the corporate dollar. And part of that experience, if someone takes the time to come in and see us and spend the time with us, we want them walking out with stuff. So a, a bag full of stuff. And, and the way we kind of curate what we want to do from a self-promo standpoint is just the product we like and the products we're hoping our customers will order. So if we're giving it away and, and it, you know, it's good enough for us, we hope that it will lead to conversations about you should do some of that. And, and if they don't ever, that's okay too. It's just more of a thank you and we're trying to, to brand ourselves like I mentioned. Yeah. How do you very good question, and I question. She asked why I took myself out of sales. Um, I think I could scale myself a little bit better if I can help the rest of the sales team. And as, as they have bigger deals, I'm still very involved. I just don't have any accounts anymore. So as they have a big deal on the hook, I try to lean in and help either on the, the vendor side with sourcing it or, or buying it right or, or helping them close the deal, whatever I can do to, to get it in the boat. So um, I'm still in sales at some level. I'm sorry? Yeah, it just gave me more time because when I had my own accounts, I had to be knee deep in it. And so now I can leverage myself across 20 sales reps instead of what I can do by myself. Yeah. Okay, two part questions as far as scale. Yes. Yeah, we're, we're heavy apparel. Because of my background and with the whole alternative apparel, and, and when I was in sales, we, I, I only pushed apparel. I didn't even sell any of the promotional products. I just got really laser focused. Um, and today, I think this, the, the spread is like 65-35. Most people are 65 promo, 35 apparel. We're the flip. So we're about 65% apparel um, at a high level. Uh, the flip side of that question was, did you get your growth organically as you in a big market like we are in Atlanta? We've got a couple reps across the country, but we've really focused. I mean, there's $500 million spend in our backyard. So we're heavy focused on Atlanta. We do have some national accounts that might be headquartered, you know, the, the franchisee may be all over the place, the franchisor may be out of Atlanta. So, um, you know, we're, we're not going to not call on an account if we feel it's a good fit because they're not in Atlanta, but there's just so much business right there. We try to, to be efficient and use the showroom and that sort of thing. Uh, speaking of apparel, uh, are there any lines right now that you're really fired about? This is the stride line, guys. Let me start by saying... When they, when, they, when, they, when they gave their presentation this morning, I couldn't help but just think of my brother and I at 25 years old. I really like what Stridelive's doing. And so we worked out a deal right before this presentation. Marshawn Lynch asked for $15,000. I got $15,000 for my Icebox socks by wearing these and plugging them. So congratulate them on the endorsement deal that we worked out right before this, right before this speech. So these guys make a great product, and that, that's, the kind of, uh, that's the kind of young energy that I'm really enjoying seeing, uh, you know, some, some hustle and some, some great product. And like I said, when, when we started, I'll tell you one more, one more quick comment. Alternative apparel, you know, Strideline and Cutter and & Buck and Adidas and Nike and Under Armour and all these brands that have found our industry, they started at retail and then they came to promo. Alternative was the most fakakta story you've ever seen because we started as gagware and ended up at retail. Did I already say this? If I did, I apologize. My brain doesn't work sometimes. But my point is, 
it's e- I don't want to say it's easy. We were going against the grain by starting it as a promotional products distributor and ending up at retail. Everyone else does the opposite. I don't think we could have done th- th- their way because we didn't have the funding, and I know you guys are building it organically, but I think it was a blessing in disguise with the timing and the market conditions for us to, to start Alternative where we did and ultimately have it evolve upstream. Just screen printing. We're, we're analyzing if we want to uh, branch out from that because we have a, a new production facility that has the space to add embroidery or heat seal or you know, direct a garment or any of that. Um, we outsource some still. Even the screen printing that we do in-house, if, you know, there's some orders that will turn our building upside down. Um, we still contract certain business, and, and our capacity right now in our own screen print production is, is about half of what we can typically do. So we're not contracting much, but if it's a weird job that'll, that'll mess us up, we still do so. And we also, um, you know, we have five automatic screen print machines, and they run about a shift and a half. So all five run from, you know, eight to five or nine to five, and then Half of them run in the second shift, so we, we really could, could max out the second shift and add an entire third shift before we really have a capacity problem, which is what the scale that I was mentioning earlier, we really did some positioning moves in the facility this year to gear up if we can go get the, the business to, to get it out the door. Yes. I do. Yeah, they, uh, my three boys um, couldn't be more different than each other, first of all. Um, but I'll give you an example. They did a lemonade stand at, in the back of our, uh, we're, I mentioned we're right on the belt line. And, and, you know, I'm on them. Why aren't you out there going and trying to make some money for yourself? And so finally talked to them. I had to, I had to sales pitch them into the lemonade stand. But they, when they finally did it, we, we decided together to not charge a price. We just said donations only. And it was the smartest move they did because people were giving them five and ten dollars instead of fifty cents that they were wanting to charge. And they're learning, you know, they had such a good time. They're they're debating their next one: is it going to be cookies or brownies or this or that? So I'm enjoying now, you know, see it happen again. I don't know if they'll end up with their own business. Sometimes I hope they don't. Uh, but but obviously that's their choice. And hopefully I've got a business that if that's if one of them's interested, maybe they could take over the family business, and I'll go drink a pina colada somewhere. (laughs) Okay, so we have approximately 20. uh, Sales reps is is an interesting word because they're more account managers. We don't have a ton of true hunters in our building. We have a lot of very talented people that we help them build their books of business, and, um, and then they farm very well. Um, so about 20 folks either are on the program side of our business where their whole job might be one account or they may have a book of business because they're on the at-once side of our business. Um, about 20 in sales. Uh, we have seven in the art department. We got five in accounting. We've got uh, a products team with three or four people on it. We have a production team with about 40 people on it. Overall, we got about 100 employees roughly. Don't ask about Strideline socks again. <laughs> you're welcome. When you're picking a supplier, whether it's who you're going to do business with regularly or the person you're going to send that big order to, yeah. what are some of the traits that you will support that separates the big ones from the ones that you That's a $64,000 question that I, ha- I, I don't have a great answer for. I can tell you that 
I think um, when Bobby uh, introduced me at the beginning, he mentioned we, we just became a part of this reciprocity road, which is, I mentioned I'm not very plugged into the industry. These guys that I've now plugged myself into are like the chairman of the PPAI. They're in every you know, networking event. They, they know everybody. And so it's been cool to kind of start this with these guys. And we are just a group of like-minded distributors that first and foremost are transparent with one another and we share you know, what's your commission plan? How do you do this? How do you do that? And we're doing it to try to take best practices. And so that part of the buying group has been really exciting to, to rub elbows with some friendly competitors. And then we collectively not only bargain to try to get a rebate here and there without hopefully pushing too hard because that's a whole nother deal that the suppliers are kind of pushing back that, you know, be careful how hard you push. But it's also just allowed us to narrow our focus to look there first. So the reciprocity road vendors are about 40 of them. And, you know, our people are, are encouraged and sometimes even incented to buy from that group. And so it's tough because you always want to have that new, great, interesting product that no one else will show, yet most of the companies in our buying group are the, are the usual suspects. And so finding that balance is, I, I don't know a good answer, honestly. I, you know, reciprocity first, and then it's all about the customer. And, and hopefully we can lead and not react and so if we are doing a good job with our reciprocity partners, we got a lot of arsenal there with product to go lead with. Hey, Scott. Yo. Uh, run by Lotto, are you doing contract work with like 90 or direct sales? All direct sales, yeah. But I don't keep it all busy all three shifts. That's the goal. Yeah. Who wants to drink? Yeah. <laughs> this Thank guy you. was awesome. Thank you. So... Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Skewcast. Be sure to keep up with our latest content by subscribing to Skewcast on iTunes or to our blog at community.commonskew.com. Until next time, friends. Thanks so much for listening.